We're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 4. Wow, we've had a great day already with music and everything. And So uh, Darren said to me, you know, Pastor, I'm glad that the uh, facilities are all working, but you know that 1120 was a really, that was a good time. It ain't happening. Don't get used to it, all right? So if you weren't here last week, we had, you know, chaos, and so we, uh, my commitment was to make it a half an hour service. My kids reminded me that I did not keep that commitment, that it was more like uh, 37 minutes or something like that. But that was beginning to end of the service. So uh, anyway, no, don't get used to it. We won't be doing this all of the time. This is my last opportunity, really. Next week is a holiday weekend, and a lot of you will be doing different things. And uh, along with that, we, it's Memorial Weekend, so we'll have uh, you know, special things going on in the service. But um, this is my last opportunity to help us as a church get prepared for the revival meetings that are coming up. Uh, you know, revival, hear me out, revival isn't something that we can make happen. It's not the way it works. Revival is an, a working of the Spirit of God on the hearts and lives of his children. So, uh, you know, all we can do, what we're looking at really is that, uh, that s- uh, parable of the sower concept. Our job is to have the soil prepared. There is no question whatsoever that the word of God is going to be sown during that week of revival meeting. Uh, God's word will be sown into our hearts. But if that word falls on stony ground, then the birds or the, the sun kills it and it doesn't work. And if that word is, falls on, on hard soil, then the birds come along and eat it up. And if that word falls on weedy soil, then the cares of this world choke it out. But if that word falls on good soil, then it brings forth great fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So our job is to get our hearts ready. You understand? Our job is to come to the revival services prepared for the word of God to be sown into our hearts. And I believe then, if that is the case, not, I just has nothing to do with what I believe. The word of God says, if that is the case, that the result will be great fruit. Do you understand? Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So I've been trying over the last few Sundays to kind of do that heart preparation. Well, today I want to consider what is it that we're actually looking for? You know, what, what is the, uh, you know, how do we know if revival actually comes to us individually? Uh, it's kind of a strange thing. I cannot tell if revival comes to you. I have no idea. I, I can see outwardly some things that happen, but the reality is that your relationship to God is not something that I can easily see. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so uh, I only see what you want me to see. And you only see what I want you to see. So we're not here to judge everybody else's circumstance. But we can know whether or not revival is coming into our own hearts. So what I'm going to do today is look in Acts chapter 4 at a time in which the church was especially sensitive to the things of God, on fire for the Lord. And I want us to say, okay, when, when we're seeing this in us, then we are you know, in a place where we are close to God, things are happening. So it may or may not be called revival by definition because revival is that we've kind of fallen back from that and we're pulling back up to or letting God pull us back up to a, a warmer relationship to him. And may not, maybe it is that this is where you're already walking, I'm aware. But when the church 
is looking like this Acts chapter 4 concept, then we're going to know that God is doing something in our midst that's not just normal church, not just what happens, you know, everywhere across the country when people gather themselves in what we call a church building uh, every Sunday. Uh, I don't know about you, but I could care less if that's, if, if, if that's all we're looking for, then you can get that anywhere. Do you understand? Uh, I, I don't want to be content with, with a God that is mediocre or with a belief system that is mediocre or with a relationship to this God that is mediocre. And I want God to do some things. And I know that from time to time, we kind of need to be spurred on to those. At least I do. And I'm going to assume that you're not that much different than I am. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, uh, you'll, we'll be in Acts chapter 4, okay? So, but in Acts chapter 3, let me tell you what happens, all right? You kind of remember this story. Uh, you know, Peter and, and uh, some disciples walk into the city, and there's a beggar. And he's saying, you know, alms, alms, I, I want some, something. And uh, Peter looks at him and says that famous line. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he goes walking and leaping and praising God, the Bible says. And, and this great thing happens, and it stirs the city leaders up to no end. And, and in Acts chapter 4, they've been dragged before the leaders, and, and it's all about how they're responding, how they as the disciples are responding, and how the church is responding to all of this. And it shows us what the people of God look like when they're on fire, when God is moving in the midst. And this, quite honestly, I want to become the prayer of Southeast Baptist Tabernacle, that God would do the same kinds of things in this congregation. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we ask that you would uh, meet with us this morning, that God, your word would go forth with power, and that God, each one of us would have a desire to walk closer to you than we've ever walked, that we would be willing to let you change our priorities to willing to let you show us what needs to be put off and what needs to be put on and how we could walk closer to you, how we could know your power as a congregation and as individual Christians. Help us, Lord, today to be willing to allow you to do this work, to prepare our hearts for what you might do in this week of revival, and we'll thank and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I ask myself some questions, uh, try to ask myself these questions quite often, but you know, every year as we're coming up on a time of revival, these are the kinds of things that start going through your pastor's mind. It's things like this. Do I have a thirst for the word of God? I mean, do, do I hunger and thirst for the things of God? Uh, some of you, I will not have to do anything but announce the dates when the revival are, you're going to be here. But even among that group, there are some who come out of duty instead of out of passion. And I'm glad to have you. But I don't want just a duty-driven Christianity. I want a relationship-driven Christianity for myself. Do I have a thirst for the things of God? Does it bug me to miss church? Because I know more than I just didn't catch up on the latest gossip but that I actually missed a feeding of my soul. I ask myself, 
do I have unity among the brethren that I'm fellowshipping with? And of course, for me, that's you, right? Uh, we would ask, but even in our families and et cetera, is there unity? Because unity is a hallmark of Christianity. Do we have these things? As I'm approaching revival times, I, I ask these questions. Do I desire to serve God? Or am I kind of like hiding behind the person sitting in front of me when the pastor's asking for volunteers? <laughs> I mean, or, or is there a passion to serve this God that I love? And how about this? I ask the Lord every year, once this time, am I sensitive to the sin of my life? Believe it or not, one of the easiest things for a pastor to do is to become very sensitive to your sin and miss his own. I can see your sin a mile away, you know? And I slap myself thinking, why can't they see it? Why don't these people get their acts together? And then God kind of reminds me that let a man examine himself, right? Am I sensitive to sin in my life? And as we're going through this, answering those questions, how does that happen? How would that revival happen? Here it is in Acts chapter 4. Let's take a look at it, starting, please, in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and of the elders of the Now, we're going to skip through some things just so you know because I don't have time to read this entire chapter and uh, otherwise we would be 1220, and Darren would really be upset at me then. So, um, but we're going to focus on, on just some of the scriptural truths. So they've called, they've called the disciples in, and they're scolding them for causing this uproar uh, by how dare they heal this man in the name of Jesus Christ, right? And uh, Jesus stands up, and, or Jesus, Peter stands up and says, by the way, they said, how did you do this? And Peter says, uh, it was through Jesus Christ, the one who you crucified, you got to read the story. That's in Acts chapter 3. And he just tells it like it is. And it's just really caused all this turmoil. So he stands up among the leaders and begins to address them. But there's a thing that happens before he starts addressing them. Not that happens, but that is a reality. What is true about Peter? Verse 8. He is filled with the Spirit of God. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, I think it is. It says, be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be ye... Filled with the Spirit, right? To be controlled by the Spirit of God. A person who is drunk with wine can't walk the same way he usually walks. He walks differently. He doesn't talk the way he usually talks. He talks differently. He doesn't act the way he usually acts. He acts differently. And when you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is controlling our actions, our conversation, controlling the, the choices that we're making, the way we're walking. And if we're not on a daily basis, having the Spirit of God interacting with our lives and, and sensing His direction, His guidance, and His conviction when we're going the wrong direction. If there's no, then let's not pretend. We're missing the key component. None of the rest of chapter 4 matters if you don't start with being filled with the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, we're told what the fruits of the Spirit are. And if we're filled with the Spirit of God, then we're going to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, keep going. We're going to exhibit these fruits in our lives. Are we filled with the Spirit of God? And by the way, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, implied by this passage, and be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, what is implied by that passage? Any ideas where I'm... You kind of read my mind here. This is a choice 
Would you agree? The Bible says, hey, Christian, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, if we're sitting around just waiting for God to, like, zap us from heaven with lightning, that's not what this is about. Being filled with the Spirit is you and I relinquishing the control we have over our lives and surrendering ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is His reasonable service. That's what being filled with the Spirit of God is. When we're hanging on to our rights and we're hanging on to what we want to do and we're telling God how He's going to bless us and what He's going to let us do, we're not filled with the Spirit, let's be honest. And until we start with this filling of the Spirit, we can't get to the rest of the revival message. Let's begin now to say, God, show me what is missing in this filling of the Spirit that I would exhibit the fruits of the Spirit on a regular basis and know what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Go down to verse 12. There's a clear understanding of the gospel that people get when they are walking close to God. You let people start drifting away from God and they start embracing things like, well, everybody's going, right? Now, answer this question for me. Does God love everybody? No. Yes. Does God want everybody to go to heaven? No. Yeah, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes. That's not the issue. But the issue is that not everybody gets to go. It doesn't work this way. Look at what verse 12 says. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. As we are walking closer to God, the reality of the gospel message hits us. And by the way, can I point out, what are the disciples doing? Because this message is clear to them and is indelibly clear to their hearts. What then is the result of their knowledge of this gospel message. They share it, right? They share it. This is what revival looks like. When people are walking close to God, you know what comes natural? Understanding the gospel, and understanding the gospel means no one goes, but through Jesus, I've got to tell them. This is a natural outflowing of, of filled with the Spirit, as you and I are entering into a week of revival, we're asking God to do these kinds of things for us, to make the Bible message very clear, and then the burden of the Bible message to come upon us. The reason they're standing before leaders today is because they understood clearly the gospel message and with boldness declared it. And now they're standing before these leaders, filled with the Spirit, understanding the gospel message. Verse 13 gives us the boldness. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. By the way, this could be your pastor's, uh, your pastor's life verse. I count myself as this. I really do. I'm usually pretty bold, probably sometimes more so, speak when I should slow down, you know. But uh, I can understand this concept of being, you know, unlearned and uh, ignorant. I, I'm not... I'm not uh, you know, a scholar. I'm not. Uh, I am a doctor, but it's not, you know, it's thankfully that God was just gracious and Pensacola gave me a doctorate. But uh, I'm not a scholar. You can be around me 15 minutes, you know that. You know, I, I don't try to be one. What I am is someone who 
believes the word of God, and I want to become bold in that belief. And that's what happens when we get the gospel message clearly in our minds. Okay, I've got this, res- this resolved. I'm no longer questioning, is Jesus the only way? But I have now accepted this truth, and it becomes my reality. Now, what that gives me is the boldness to share that truth. When people are walking close to God, there's this filled with the Spirit concept that brings them to a clear understanding of the gospel that gives them the boldness to share the gospel message because that's what others need in order to be saved. When they saw that they were learned, ignorant and unlearned men, they marveled and took knowledge of them and listened to this. This is what made the difference. Education, I'm not against education. I think all of you should get master's degrees, doctors, if you can get it. I'm, I'm serious. I mean this. I don't think you should ever stop learning. Stop learning, you start dying. It's just not a good place for us to be. But here's how you become the person that God's going to use. It's not through the book. Through, it is through the book. But it's not through reading a book. It's not through going to classes and seminars. It is through spending time with Jesus. Do you see that? They marveled that they were ignorant and unlearned men, and they took note that they had spent time with Jesus. I'm asking a question to Southeast Baptist Tabernacle. As we're coming into this time of meeting with the word of God being sown in our hearts, are we walking filled with the spirit of God, clearly understanding the gospel, sharing the gospel boldly, and that comes about because we are spending time with Jesus. Southeast, if we're, not, if we're not setting aside time every day to meet with God and to pray and to read and study his word, do we really believe that we're ever going to be the kind of church that's being described here in Acts chapter 4? Do we really believe that we're going to be the kind of church that's going to, that's going to shake the foundations of a society around us? If we're not spending time with Jesus. Read the books, that's great. Take classes, that's fantastic. But in the doing, spend time with the Lord. Go on down, if you would, please, to verse 18. And they called them and commanded them to not speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. Now, I would guess if we would go around the room that maybe in a room with this many people, maybe once or twice, three times, there's some people in here who you've actually been told you can't speak about Jesus. Now, I I know, for instance, one that's sitting here that, you know, at work was called in by their their, uh, employers and said, no, this isn't happening. We're not paying you to speak about Jesus. All right? Okay, that's fine. That's that's true, right? They're, not, they're really not, you're paying me to speak about Jesus, but not that many people get paid to speak about Jesus. So at work, that's fine, but they were, they were told. But you know how few times that happens in somebody's life? So we can't just think about it this, in these terms, if you'll let me. The idea was that they were trying to do for Peter and the other disciples was to try to discourage them from following after the Lord. Now that using that broader paintbrush, many of you here have had times in which family members, friends, 
rules, laws, whatever, have tried to discourage you from speaking about the Lord. That's different. Maybe you haven't been commanded not to speak about the Lord, but many times people roll their eyes, they avoid you, uh, whatever, you know, and all these things. And there's, there's this, this attempt to discourage God's people. And Southeast, if we step out and say, God, we want to grow, and we want to draw closer to you, and we want to be a church that's powerful and on fire and seeing things happen, then you can just mark it down. There's going to be things happen to discourage it. While we may have some people gathered around us right now that are going to encourage us in the things of the Lord, once you step outside those doors, that encouragement starts vanishing quickly. Once you step inside the doors of your work or your school, that encouragement evaporates to almost nothing. And we've got to decide what we're going to do. Well, here we are in verse 18. You know, they, they called Peter in. They said, quit speaking about Jesus. And then the next verse, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, if we're going to be that church that's on fire for God, if we're going to be that individual that's on fire for God, if we're going to know what revival looks like and walking close to God and being filled with the Spirit and being used of God in a powerful way, we've got to learn how to get past the discouragement. It's not easy. It's not. It's not easy to look that person who's trying to discourage you right in the eye and say, that may sound good to you, but I have to do what God's called me to do. I have to. But it's going to be the difference between a quasi-mediocre, average church and a church that is on fire, being used by the Holy Spirit of God to shake up the city around them. Do you see the difference? They said, oh, no, we're not going to be discouraged. That may sound good to you. It may be convenient for you if we stop talking about Jesus. It may be convenient for you. No, please hear me out. There's that fine line between I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus and I'm going to be rude. All right? Rude is never a biblical concept. You simply don't, you know, years ago, I mean years, I'm talking about years ago, thankfully, and, and Baptists were really notoriously bad about this. We would teach people to go knock on a door, you know, hello, and we would be like the proverbial salesman. Put your foot in the door, you know, so they can't, they can't close. No. You know what? Somebody puts their foot in my door, you know what I want to do? Break their foot with my door. I don't care if they're there in the name of Jesus or what. You understand? Like, that's my house. And we're not called upon by God to be rude. But we cannot let the idea that not everybody wants this message keep us from sharing it. We cannot let discouragement settle over our Christianity. That is what forces churches into average and mediocre. That's what it becomes. Peter and John said, I'm sorry, that may sound good to you, but we cannot do anything but what God's called us to do, but to speak the truth about Jesus, things that we have seen and heard. Go down to verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God. 
What are the words? With one accord. I already brought this up, but you know, here's, here is a truth. One of the things that is absolutely true about a church that is on fire for God is unity. Find a church that is splintering, and you will find a church that is not filled with the Spirit of God, that does not have a clear understanding of the gospel, that is not burdened for the souls of people so that they share the gospel. They're splintering and fracturing, and it's, things are going to fall apart. If there's one thing that consistently throughout the New Testament is the hallmark of God's people is unity. Jesus himself said it this way to the disciples, and hereby shall men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another, right? One for another. When Christians can't get along, then why would the world want what we're speaking to them about? Why would they even want it? Uh, you know, so... You, you destroy the gospel message by going and complaining to your beautician about your husband or your pastor, right? And then try to share the gospel with her. Why does she want what you've got? She can get that from anybody, right? I mean, don't misunderstand, but the uniqueness about Christianity is that we may not all agree, and we don't even like each other sometimes, but we learn to love each other in spite of that. That's a uniqueness about Christianity. By the way, God looks at us, and he doesn't always like us, would you agree? But he always loves us. It's a, it's a uniqueness about Christianity. And so we've got to let God unify the body in order for this kind of ministry to take place. So they lifted up their voices to God, and by the way, let's back up a little bit before we get to the unity and talk about this. They lift up their voices to whom? To God. What do, we call, what do we call it when we're lifting up our voices to God? Prayer. Would you agree, and you're going to see it again in just a little bit, would you agree that prayer has to become an integral part of God doing a work in a body of believers? Would you agree with me that if we're not praying for one another and with one another, that we're not ever going to get to an Acts chapter 4 church. We'll never see God doing this kind of movement amongst us if we don't learn how to pray. In fact, I'm jumping ahead of it here, but uh, go ahead to um, verse 31. And when they had, what's the word? Prayed, the place was shaken. Wow. We're never going to be that kind of church if we don't figure out how to pray for and with one another. Um, it, it's, it was an interesting thing. I was having a conversation. I won't tell you who with. But um, they said to me, if we really believe this, then why aren't we having more conversation about it just as believers? And this person was commenting about the fact that when, when we are in the halls together as a body of believers, there's less conversation about the Lord than the weather and the toilets. And, the, and, and, and if this is our reality, then why isn't the Lord like a major part of our conversation? And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I'm preaching this message is because I don't want Southeast Baptist to be that kind of a church. I want us to be the kind of church that we do understand the importance of the Lord. And so 
you know, it, it starts with this concept of praying, and then God begins to shake things up, and things begin to happen like never before. And so uh, they, they seek the Lord. And when they're seeking the Lord, here's what they say in verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant to thy servants that with all boldness they may speak what? Hear me out. Not speak your opinion. Not speak your pastor's opinion. Right? That's not where, it's, that's not where the power is found. That we may with all boldness speak thy word that we understand the, the emphasis must be on the word of God. It's not on the constitution of Southeast Baptist Tabernacle. It's not on our statement of faith. It's not on the pastor's message. It is on the word of God. Because the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's what's powerful. And so they spoke the word. And of course, then in verse 31, when they prayed, the place was shaken. And let's keep going in verse 31. Where they were assembled together. Now, this is just the truth. Southeast, as a body of believers, won't know revival until Southeast is assembled for that purpose. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if we all skip out and then we miss out, God revives. 15, 20, 35, 50, 75, whatever. But the church misses out. This shaking of God's power happens when God's people assemble themselves together. And I'm saying this, I want to be careful. I, I'm not, I don't want you to show up because I browbeat you into it, right? If you show up because I make you feel guilty, then you're going to hate me for it the whole time that Dave Young's preaching. You know, I can't wait till this is done. All right, pastor, you owe me one. No, no, that, you know, that, that's, not, that's not it. We're missing it. So I'm not asking you to assemble yourself because Pastor John will be disappointed if, but no. I'm wanting us to have such a thirsting for the power of God as a body of believers that we just assemble ourselves because we all want it that badly what God might do in a week of meetings where the word of God is being sown onto a heart that's ready and open and willing to let fruit come forth. So they were assembled together, and they were all, there it is again, filled with the Holy Ghost, and there it is again. They spake the word, and there it is again, with boldness, and there it is again in verse 32, with one heart and one soul. And look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. And folks, if that were a description of Southeast Baptist Tabernacle, wouldn't you be saying, wow, that's the kind of church I want to be at. That's what we're asking God to do. How we know we've got revival. Filled with the Spirit, understanding the gospel, preaching it with boldness, having absolute unusual unity, praying and asking for God's power and seeing God's power shake the very foundations of our individual lives and Southeast Baptist becomes changed. Heads about it.